The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. If you require legal advice, you should consult a lawyer. No one connected with this podcast in any way whatsoever can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views and opinions expressed are those of the podcast and do not represent the opinions of any other person, entity, agency, organization, employer, or company. These views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Nowakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. This is the podcast where I target the law in law enforcement. And thank you all for tuning in. This week I went for a couple of awesome hikes on the 79 Grind. For those of you that live in the Fraser Valley and enjoy hiking BC's great outdoors, I would encourage you to give it a try. It's a 5km out and back trail, so about 10k in total. The trail is located in Mission, BC in the Stave West Forest and Recreation Area. It is fairly steep, but offers beautiful views from its platform at the top, which overlooks Stave Reservoir, Devil's Lake, and many mountain peaks. Now moving on to this episode, I will be discussing a case courtesy of the Alberta Court of Appeal, cited as R.V. Bidlock-Hawkins, 2022, ABCA 201, which involves the use of excessive force during an arrest and what a judge did to remedy the situation in the accused criminal trial. As always, I'll put a link to the case in the episode notes. There are two perspectives I want you to consider. The first perspective is from the officer's point of view. What would you have done in similar circumstances if you were responding to this event? This is difficult, of course, because we weren't there, and it's far too easy to judge with the benefit of hindsight. However, we can still learn from this case. The second perspective is to consider what would you have done if you were the judge and had to decide on a remedy? What would you do? Briefly, the facts as found by the trial judge are as follows. This event occurred in the early morning hours and involved a police pursuit. The accused, Mr. Wesley Bidlock Hawkins, who I will refer to as just Wesley since Bidlock Hawkins is a mouthful, was the driver of a fleeing vehicle. He was driving a Dodge Ram truck when he sped away from police. Air One, the police helicopter, was used to monitor Wesley's truck. Air One surveilled the pursuit for about 30 to 35 minutes, which included an infrared video recording. Wesley eventually drove the truck into the backyard of a rural acreage and became stuck in the snow. Five tactical squad officers were on scene to effect Wesley's arrest. A canine officer with his police service dog was also present, but did not actively participate. As the tactical officers approached the truck, Wesley was trying to move the truck out of the snow. The officers yelled at Wesley to exit the truck, but he did not do so for several minutes, during which time officers threw flashbangs and fired Arwen rounds at the vehicle and broke its front passenger window. Wesley eventually exited the truck with his hands in the air, appearing to surrender, and he laid in the snow face down with his arms outstretched. The five tactical officers converged on Wesley to restrain and arrest him. When the officers reached Wesley, he revived his resistance and was kicking, screaming, and would not show his hands during the arrest. As a result, various forms of force were used to subdue him. One officer stepped on Wesley's head shortly after he exited the vehicle to prevent him from fleeing. This officer also kicked Wesley in the head four to eight times, knelt on his back, delivered several hammer strikes to his head, and applied pressure to his mandibular nerve. A second officer kicked Wesley in the head and abdomen. A third officer stood on Wesley's legs to stop him from kicking. A fourth officer pulled Wesley's arm out from underneath him so he could be handcuffed. And a fifth officer tased Wesley a total of three times and stood or sat on the lower portion of his body. 
As a consequence of the force used, Wesley had headaches for 15 days as well as facial injuries and a sore jaw for an unknown period of time following the arrest. Wesley went on trial in Alberta Provincial Court. He pled guilty to dangerous driving and two breaches of probation and was convicted after trial of fleeing the police. The judge, however, found some of the force used in arresting Wesley, but not all of it, was excessive. The kicks to Wesley's abdomen were borderline reasonable, while the use of the taser, the pressure on his mandibular nerve, and standing on him were reasonable uses of force given the circumstances. The kicks and hammer strikes to Wesley's head, however, were found by the judge to be clearly excessive and could not be condoned. This excessive force, the judge ruled, breached Wesley's Section 7 charter right, that's the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and his Section 12 charter right, the right not to be subjected to any cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. But rather than staying the criminal convictions under Section 24.1 of the Charter as Wesley wanted, the judge merely reduced his 15-month sentence to eight months of time served. Wesley appealed the provincial court ruling to the Alberta Court of Appeal, claiming the trial judge should have stayed the convictions as a remedy for the excessive force used against him because it was so egregious. So what do you think the judge should have done in this case after finding excessive force was used? Was a sentence reduction an appropriate remedy? Or should the convictions have been stayed? As a starting point, the Supreme Court of Canada in R.V. Nosogolowak has recognized that police officers are permitted to use force in the course of their duties, but their powers are constrained by the principles of proportionality, necessity, and reasonableness. Here is something also worth noting. Generally, a person who claims their charter rights have been breached bears the onus of proving it on a balance of probabilities. However, where a person claims a charter breach on the basis of excessive force, the burden shifts. As the Court of Appeal put it, quote, Once an individual establishes an assault has occurred and there was a resulting injury, the burden shifts to the Crown to establish the assault was justified under Section 25 of the Criminal Code. End quote. An assault, of course, includes the non-consensual and intentional application of physical force. Thus, it is self-evident when the police use force to effect an arrest, the elements of an assault are generally satisfied. However, Section 25 of the Criminal Code justifies the use of as much force as is necessary in the circumstances when an officer effects a lawful arrest, provided they act on reasonable grounds. Although the onus is on the Crown to justify force in the context of a charter application, it is actually the police officers involved that have the explaining to do. It is the officer in the witness box who must justify their conduct. Moreover, if the use of force is justified, an officer is exempt from criminal liability, meaning they would avoid a conviction for assault had the officer been on trial. In this case, there was the Air One video that Wesley said showed he was not actively resisting as the trial judge had found. Wesley argued the video established that the trial judge was wrong to conclude that some of the force used by the police was justified, which then tainted the judge's entire use of force analysis. But the three Court of Appeal judges reviewed the video themselves and rejected Wesley's claim that the video proved his case. The video was not as clear as Wesley made it out to be. The video was not of great quality. It was filmed with an infrared camera at low resolution and without audio. The people all appeared as white human-shaped figures and the video was shot from the helicopter's bird's eye view. It was difficult to identify precisely the events on the ground and when the police converged on Wesley, the figures overlapped. It was challenging and at times impossible for the judges to determine exactly what was happening from the video. The video also stopped before the arrest finished, so the entire interaction with police was actually not captured. The Court of Appeal also found the trial judge did not make an error by rejecting Wesley's testimony where it differed from what could be seen on the video. Wesley had a criminal record containing crimes of dishonesty, 
and his own testimony contained inconsistent and contradictory statements. The trial judge also found Wesley seemed to remember what served his interest, but he was unclear, evasive, and unable to recall matters that would have been counterproductive from his perspective. His testimony was also inconsistent with what the arresting officers said happened. The trial judge did not simply accept all of the arresting officers' testimony as whole cloth, but thoroughly considered the strengths and weaknesses of each individual officer's evidence. She accepted all of the testimony from three of the arresting officers, but she found parts of the evidence of the two officers that delivered the kicking and hammer strikes to Wesley's head were inconsistent with the Air One video or with the testimony from the three officers she did accept. In the end, the Alberta Court of Appeal upheld the trial judge's conclusion that some, but not all of the force used during the arrest was excessive. As to her choice of a remedy under Section 24 of the Charter by reducing Wesley's sentence to one of time served, it was meaningful and not unjust. Remedies under Section 24 of the Charter are discretionary. Appellate judges will show deference to trial judges unless they misdirect themselves regarding the law or their decision is so clearly wrong as to amount to an injustice. In other words, a trial judge's discretionary decision will not be replaced simply because an appeal judge may have had a different assessment of the facts. So what are some of the legal lessons we can learn from this case and others like it? First, the courts have a role to play in guarding against the illegitimate use of force by police. It takes little insight to also understand that police officers are the first line of defense against the use of excessive force. After all, it is the police officer who must not only decide the need for force, but also the amount of force to be used. Of course, deciding the amount of force to use will not always be that easy. As the Supreme Court of Canada noted in Nassau-Gallawak, quote, Police action should not be judged against a standard of perfection. It must be remembered that the police engage in dangerous and demanding work and often have to react quickly to emergencies. Their actions should be judged in light of these exigent circumstances, end quote. Even in this case, the trial judge placed the force used into three categories, excessive, reasonable, and borderline reasonable. Borderline connotes what I would say is force that falls in a gray area or boundary of what is acceptable. So it's not always going to be clear to the judge or, of course, the police officer who must decide whether to use force at all and how much to use. When I was a cop, I used all sorts of force to arrest people, and I did my best to judge what I needed to do to get the job done. Sometimes I probably didn't use enough because I ended up getting kicked, hit, and bit, even all during the same arrest. Nevertheless, I always knew that whatever I did, I would need to explain at some point. Second, as already noted, once force resulting in injury has been proven, a prima facie charter breach exists and the evidentiary burden shifts to the Crown to prove the force used was justified. Section 25 of the Criminal Code is designed to protect those engaged in law enforcement from civil and criminal liability when they are required to use force in performing their public duties. It is also being called the peace officer defense and recognizes that peace officers must be able to effectively carry out their law enforcement duties, which may necessitate them committing acts that would otherwise constitute criminal acts, like assault. In assessing whether the police were within the justification contemplated by Section 25, a court must determine if, number one, the officer was required or authorized by law to do anything in the administration or enforcement of the law. Number two, the officer acted on reasonable grounds in doing what the officer was required or authorized to do. And number three, in doing what the officer was required or authorized to do, the officer used no more force than was reasonably necessary. Where police officers use force intended or likely to cause death or grievous bodily harm, additional considerations apply. 
Not mentioned in the appeal court's decision, but worth noting, is that the trial judge found the numerous kicks and strikes to Wesley's head, although not intended to cause death or grievous bodily harm, were likely to do so. Thus, the provisions of Section 25 Sub 3 and Section 25 Sub 4 of the Criminal Code were engaged. Both of these provisions require a belief on reasonable grounds that it is necessary to protect the officer or another from death or grievous bodily harm. Although sometimes a safe harbor from liability, Section 25 does not provide absolute protection from officers acting in any manner they see fit. Police officers do not have an unlimited power to inflict harm on a person in the course of their duties. Although the police may have to resort to force in order to complete an arrest or prevent an offender from escaping custody, the allowable degree of force that may be used is constrained by the principles of proportionality, necessity, and reasonableness. This use of force analysis is officer-centered. A subjective and objective test is applied to assess the reasonableness of a police officer's belief that the force used was necessary. The officer must subjectively believe the force used was necessary, and their belief must be objectively reasonable in all the circumstances. Third, the use of excessive force can amount to a charter violation under Section 7, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, or in some cases Section 12, the right not to be subjected to any cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. Although not mentioned in this case, the amount of force used is also a consideration in whether a search or seizure is reasonable under Section 8 or a detention or arrest is arbitrary under Section 9. Remember, how you physically conduct your searches and seizures and the manner in which you effectuate an arrest or detention matters. This then can open the door to a remedy under Section 24 of the Charter, whether it be the exclusion of evidence under Section 24.2 or other remedies such as a stay of proceedings or reduction in sentence under Section 24 sub 1. Fourth, it is not even necessary for a sentencing judge to resort to Section 24.1 of the Charter to reduce a sentence. A sentencing judge may properly take charter violations into account, as well as other state misconduct, which does not even amount to a charter breach, in determining a fit and proportionate sentence under the sentencing provisions of the criminal code. For example, the principles of sentencing found in Section 718 of the Criminal Code describes the fundamental purpose of sentencing as that of contributing to respect for the law and the maintenance of a just, peaceful, and safe society. This allows sentencing judges to consider not only the actions of the offender, but also those of state actors such as the police. Provided the police conduct that is called into question relates to the individual offender and the circumstances of their offense, the sentencing process includes a consideration of society's collective interest in ensuring that police officers respect the rule of law and the shared values of Canadian society. Fifth, the case I discussed today only addressed the remedy for Wesley, who was an accused person in a criminal trial. The officers were not on trial for assault, where they would have the procedural protections afforded to an accused in criminal proceedings. This case was not about any officer's guilt or innocence. Even a police officer is entitled to the presumption of innocence in a criminal trial, and the standard of proof in a criminal case is very different than in a civil case or a charter application, as was the case here. In a criminal prosecution, the onus is on the Crown to prove the essential elements of an assault beyond a reasonable doubt and disprove at least one of the elements of an applicable Section 25 defense beyond a reasonable doubt. This burden of proof never shifts in a criminal trial. A judge in a criminal trial is required to weigh all of the evidence on the beyond a reasonable doubt standard and could well come to a different conclusion about the facts of what happened during the arrest. As BC's Court of Appeal noted in Clausen v. British Columbia, a civil case, a police officer testifying in a criminal trial is not a party to the proceeding. They are a witness. The Crown lawyer is not the police officer's lawyer and does not represent the officer's personal interest during a criminal trial. 
but instead must act solely in the public interest. The police and the Crown have distinct roles. The police role is to investigate crime. The Crown Prosecutor's role is to act in the public interest and carry out their duties to protect the integrity of the judicial process and the rights of an accused. It is improper for a Crown Prosecutor to advance the personal interests of a police officer in a criminal proceeding. And because the Crown does not represent a police officer's personal interests, an officer may disagree with a Crown Counsel's approach to the calling of evidence, cross-examination of witnesses, and submissions. Fact is, a police officer has no right to call witnesses or make submissions on their own behalf at a criminal trial in which they are not on trial. I think this underscores the necessity for police officers to learn and understand the law so they can look after their personal interests in any venue. Of course, allegations of excessive force can lead to other sanctions against police officers. A civil lawsuit against police, a claim for charter damages, potential criminal charges against officers, and misconduct investigations under provincial police legislation are all potential consequences that could result from allegations of excessive use of force by police. Finally, a judge may accept all, none, or just some of a witness's evidence. That witness might be you. Your credibility and the reliability of your evidence does not receive special status simply because you're a police officer. The judge will assess and weigh your testimony as they would any other witness. It is actually a legal error for a trial judge to apply a stricter standard of scrutiny to assess the credibility and the evidence of an accused than that used to assess the credibility and the evidence of a police officer. Interestingly, I was reading a copy of the RCMP Constable's Manual from 1957. It states, and I quote, Because of the reputation of the force and the respect enjoyed by individual members, usually considerably more weight is attached to the constable's evidence than would normally be given to that of the ordinary citizen, end quote. How have times changed? If you think this podcast would interest others, I would ask that you share this with at least three colleagues. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart. Stay safe.